Welcome to Sonic Artifacts, offering the best deals and interesting finds in affordable vintage music equipment across America. This week on our interview series, we sit down with Marcus Resch of Mellotron. Sparked by an idea formed in the U.S., popularized in the U.K., and now built out of Stockholm, Sweden, the Mellotron has been a mysterious, elusive, and true studio gem for decades. With their new line of digital Mellotrons featuring raw sound samples from the master tapes, this rare piece of gear is now accessible to you and I. This is your host, Brian Chalemi, signing in from Manhattan. And Marcus, I have to say, I'm very excited about this interview and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Uh, you know, when I emailed you originally, I, I just bought uh, you know a micro Mellotron after using one in the studio. I put it on a new single that I just put out uh, and it was something I needed to have. And I was just telling you a little earlier about the joy of just playing at the simplicity of an instrument like this. Uh, and how did this all get started for you? Because uh, obviously Mellotrons have been around, you know, since the late 50s, early 60s here. Uh, so what is your relationship to Mellotron and how did this digital project get started? Uh, so, yeah, so I started out in the 90s, basically helping out the the guy that had bought all the, all the old tapes and the rights to the name. So I starting like mid 80s, when I was just a teenager in high school, I started listening to all these Prague albums and records and music. And after a while, I got in touch with some bands that were playing this kind of music in Stockholm because I was going to these record stores that had the original albums and some bootlegs and stuff. And I got in touch with these uh, Prague bands that had just started out again, that were younger guys, you know, between 20 and 23, had used the Mellotron and played uh, Prague, as it's called in English, it, you know, in the old vein, in the old style of King Crimson and Yes and Genesis, etc. And they showed me the Mellotron, which, and then, of course, a light bulb went on in my head because I had heard all these great string sounds and choir sounds, and I tinkered around with some synths at some friend's place and maybe at some music store. I'm not a keyboard player myself, and those things were Extremely expensive, of course, at that time, being just a student in Sweden. So, but then seeing the Mellotron and hearing it, of course, a light bulb went on my head that made me say, like, oh, this is the explanation <laughs> why I've been hearing all these fantastic uh, choir sounds and, and string sounds and flute sounds, sounds. I was assuming there were some big, huge synthesizer walls or something like that. Because, of course, at that time also, it was extremely hard to find photos of, of the studios and live, etc. Et now you just Google and wham, you can get 20 photos from the Yes Tour of 1973, you know, or, or even something more, even more exotic, you know, King Crimson live in 71, boom, and you see a Mellotron. That was not the case back then, obviously. So, uh, but I, I just, uh, and, and of course, the Mellotrons that they had, were were often not working so i started out trying to adjust the the mechanism and etc but after uh, not too long time one of the guys said that he had been in touch with a guy that apparently had started it all over again because we also had of course some tape frames that where the tapes were broken and of course not only didn't you have any uh, master any recordings or anything like that but you could, in theory, of course, take the next note up and very speed it down. That was, of course, possible back in those days. But the tape in, a, in, a, in, in most 
mammotrons, and definitely in the mammotrons that we have access to, were 3 8 inch, because that is a convenient format to put under a keyboard, but it's not the format that you can buy in this ever, more or less. You could have never been able to buy 3 8 inch tape from a tape manufacturer. It's between quarter inch and half inch. So it was completely impossible to replace a tape, and some of the tape frames had like spliced and taped you know, the, the remnants of tapes that might have been mangled in the machine. So I got in touch with a guy called Dave Keane, who had bought all of the master tapes and was making new tapes. And we d directly ordered tapes, and it turned also, and I had also been working at the same time, I had been working on, an, on, on a double manual uh, machine that the Mark V that is that is basically a double manual of the 400, which is the more common Mellotron, and uh, which has changeable tape frames. So that Mark V wasn't working at all, and I was planning on making a new uh, motor control for that machine because the motor control had burned up. And and when I got in touch with Dave, I was like, Hey, I'm planning to do a new motor control. Are you interested in one or the other? And he was like, I need 10 as fast as you can make them. Because one of the design flaws and one of the reasons actually why the original Mellotron company went down in the 70s is that they, in most of the small, of the 400 Mellotrons, which were the ones that they were selling big time in, in, in the US and, and in Europe, the 400, they had a horrible motor control that made them go out of tune, which wasn't actually necessary at all. If you had a better motor control, it worked a lot better. They were selling retrofits for Mellotron already back then, but most of them hadn't been converted. So this was where Dave and I, and especially Dave, of course, was the tapes were made by Dave and sold. And then I was starting to make these motor controls and Dave was selling them, you know, for our measures, tons of them, so to say, which means, of course, up until this day, I've only sold about 180. But still, to us, it, because it was just a hobby business, I was at the same time in technical college, and it, it was just very much a hobby thing for me. I was also making two bands and all kinds of audio electronics. It was a fun side side project, so to say. But of course, my most important side project, because not it didn't take too long because Dave had bought all of the original, uh, what do you call it, inventory, the original bankruptcy inventory, both from the English and the U.S. company. It had split up during the 70s. And he was, the first thing he ran out of was, a, was the motor, were the motor controls, because everybody needs those, that, that has the bad motor control card. And then, of course, people wanted more sounds. Then you also need a new tape frame on that because most people, they have the old tape frames, they maybe change the tapes in that tape frame, but then if they wanted more sounds, what would you do? There was no other way. So I started making tape frames for him, I started making some little minor parts that were needed that often get lost, basically, and some screws that you attach the keyboard with, um, and some other small, small parts. That we uh, that that you need, but the main thing was, of course, the tape frames, and and it started to build up more and more. And of course, when those big Mellotron hits, so to say, came along in the mid 90s, first of all, uh, it was Wonderwall by Oasis, and then 
uh, I'm Like a Bird by Nelly Furtado and, and then Exit Music for a Film and that whole OK Computer album, which especially the OK Computer album really opened up the eyes for the, for the more, shall we say, the producers and those musicians that were really, you know, gearheads, basically. We really noticed when that album came out that there were a lot of people like uh, noticing that you can use the Mellotron in a new creative way. It wasn't just, you know, something that, because when I, when we were working back in those days, a lot of people were just telling us like, hey, you guys, you know, this is just for the old stuff. I remember several guys telling me around about 94, 95, that choir sound, and the, there's some related, the eight boys choir, the four boys, and the female on the four boys male who are related, they're recorded at the same time. That's never going to be usable anymore. That's been flogged to death, so to say, by the so to say, by the frog bounds, which is not even true because it hasn't been used that much. But, but of course, Genesis used it and some other, yes, used it to some extent. And, but, you know, it, it, but people, it was just like, that is so prog, it's never going to be used again. Yeah, well, what about OK Computer then? <laughs> and then after that, tons and tons and tons of others. So it's just, it just takes somebody to do something pioneering and something, uh, you know, creative. My opinion is that these sounds have some sort of intrinsic, uh, mysterious, uh, haunting effect to them. The way they were recorded and the way they, they're played back, and you know, it just, uh, it just uh, so, something with those recordings that that um, gives it this very, very, um, yeah, well, <laughs> haunting effect, this magical whatever it is, you know. One one interesting example is the the Chamberlain, which was the predecessor of the of the Mellotron. Uh, that that came out in, in America in the in the mid 50s. It was Chamberlain that recorded the, the three violins. That string sound, which is 90% of the string sounds used by the Mellotron, is three violins. But it's a second, third generation copy, and then also some weird EQing has been done along the way. The three violins of the Chamberlain is much clearer, much more hi-fi, much more high-end in the recording, but it doesn't have that whatever it is, <laughs> you know, that cuts through a, a, a recording. It, it just, it's a very clear example that, that whatever was done through to the Mellotron recordings and also how the Mellotron instruments in themselves sound contributes a lot to whatever that is that makes it sit so well in the mix and, and gives it uh, this haunting effect, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, that is definitely the first thing when you when you play a Mellotron for the first time is it's the ghostly, otherworldly feel yeah. to these sounds. Uh, it feel, you know, the, these are people really playing these instruments, you know, these instruments 70, 75 years ago, whether it's a saxophone or a flute or a piano or, or an acoustic guitar. Do you have any knowledge of who these musicians were that are actually playing these sounds that are now used on all these songs? To some extent, rather little extent, as a matter of fact, but we know that Chamberlain used musicians from the Lawrence Welk Orchestra at that time. 
players that were in that orchestra that he used for sessions. But then it also was local. I mean, he, he was in Rancho Cucamonga out in uh, close to LA. Often it says Ontario, and then a lot of people think they, they're made in Canada. <laughs> but it's it's out there in in the eastern suburbs of LA. I mean, he, he, he also went to a local radio station to do some recording in that radio studio. So it was very much just, you know, whatever, whoever, whatever was close by, so to say. And then, of course, in England, uh, Eric Robinson was one of the guys that financed the English, uh, the Melotone, basically. He had a band. He had a big band that he was playing. And one has to remember, in the t in TV in the early 60s and mid-60s in England, the adult audience, so to say, was very much big band oriented. That was, you know, what was big when the people that were mid-age, uh, what do you call it, middle-aged, 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 back in the late 50s, early 60s, they were young in in the big band era, and of course wanted to hear that on TV and on the radio. So he was very popular playing big band music. And that is something one of, of course also has to keep in the back of one's head when you listen to the rhythms and all of that that were recorded for the first version of the Melaton, the Mark One and the Mark II, uh, which are some rumba, cha-cha-cha, foxtrot, and it's very much like and what can we call it? Entertainment jazz orchestra playing this this stuff, and that's what they were, as well as Harry Chamberlain was envisioning this to be the big invention for a one-man band, one-man entertainment orchestra to basically replace. Not all ballrooms had a big band, but I don't know what the what it, the, a small band, if you want to call it that, you know, like a, a smaller big band, basically, that were playing, you know, the, the evergreens of the day and, you know, the danceable music that was popular in the late 50s and early 60s. And that's what both Harry Chamberlain and Bellatron thought that they had made in the box. Uh, and I don't know what gave them that idea, but because if you if you ever try to, if you're a musician, a keyboard player, and you try to do that with a Mellotron, it's a nightmare. It's very, very hard to do. Even though they did, especially the Mellotron company, they did a fantastic job, and they put in hours and hours and hours in recording this. And the musicians that were doing it were the Eric Robinson's band, and they were, they were actually, he was also a part owner in IBC Studios, which was the biggest, one of the biggest, or the biggest independent studio in, in London at the time. This is also where uh, The Who did a lot of recordings. Tommy is recorded at IBC, for instance, when that studio was sort of in a decline, if you want to put it that way, because there were other studios opening with more tracks, etc., etc. But it's an, it's an interesting uh, side note that it, it is actually those rooms that, uh, that existed at that time where, where, where the, uh, the Mountain rhythms and leads and all that were recorded by musicians from uh, Eric Robinson's band. And then, of course, later, like the choir, the church organ, and, and the stuff that they were recording later on, that is, of course, even more difficult to pinpoint who it was. 
because then Eric Robinson was out of the picture because he had that around about 1971. He'd realized that this is this is never going to go anywhere where he wants it to go. This is not going to be a money machine, making it sort of like upper class, upper middle class. Uh, band in a box that everybody would have in their living room who who, who were like upper upper middle class or, or higher, you know, that never happened. You know, it's it's telling that Princess Margaret and Peter Sellers, they reportedly were given instruments or they were given and then hope they were maybe hoping to, that they would pay them, but they never paid and gave the instruments back. And that kind of tells you that it, it didn't work the way they were thinking it would work. But but then of course it just took off like crazy when Moody Blues, Beatles, King Crimson, all of those David Bowie, you name it, all of those bands started using it uh, as a sample playback instrument, as a playback soundtrack. But the Beatles the Beatles of course. Yeah. There's a great video on YouTube of because Paul owns one of them that where he demonstrates the the band in a box, uh, the original intention. I suggest everyone check that out. That's a really great explanation of uh, you know what the scenario you just described. But you know, moving forward to the future here, uh, we can get into the details of the new Mellotrons. But you know, you go online and you see all these videos of running these digital Mellotrons through you know polysense, monosense, and getting these ambient pads and incredibly beautiful sounds that. As you said, no one 40 years ago could have envisioned that this is where this is going to go, the potential in these beautiful sound samples. And it's so interesting to me to think about the fact that, you know, whoever played saxophone on these or violin has no idea that, you know, their child has no idea that that's that's them on these recordings that are now being used in all these all these songs. Yeah, no, it is. And and, and it's been a long time. People have been saying, and that's also how it sounds. The eight voice choir, it's dead people singing. (laughs) Yeah. But but it but it also has this this haunting effect. However, they they mm-hmm. they and it's often just happy accidents because um, you often hear that when they were trying to improve making re-recordings of trombones and and trumpets, for instance, that, those are two examples. They just played it then without vibrato, for instance, and more even. Well, how does it sound then? Like a synth more like I said you know there are some the, the gc3 brass or the two brass which is two trombones two trumpets and the other one is two alto saxophones and two uh, tenor saxophones uh, it just sounds i mean you can hear it's it is a, a, a recording but in a mix you it would be hard to tell it's from you know a brass pad on a synth even in the, in the late 70s Definitely the beauty of imperfection. Not only people say, of course, yes, the Mellotron, because because it's such a crappy tape machine, basically. It's such a crappy playback unit. But also the happy accident is actually already in the in the recording because not only do they vary a little bit in in pitch, they also vary very much in intensity. So when you look at these recordings on, on a computer screen, you think it would sound horribly, you know, that it would just, it just, it's no, you just, you, it, you, you just itch to like, oh, let's even this out or just let make, let's fix this here and there. But that's completely the wrong way to go. And of course, I've never done anything like that because when you then look at, let's say this, for example, this two brass sound, it looks 
fantastic on the screen. It, they probably used a compressor also, I think, because that recording, the two brasses actually done in Philadelphia in, I think, 1975. And I think they used the compression, all, all kinds of stuff on it, because it sounds sterile. I mean, for a Mellotron sound, it sounds sterile. I mean, it's still useful. You can still do something with it, but it doesn't have a, a, a near as much character as these other sounds have. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, to to your point, you know, we mix with our ears, not our eyes. Yeah, you know, so right. you're sitting there looking at a sound sample, like, oh, this is not perfect, but this is the magic. Yeah. This is the you know the thing that makes it special, that adds that that spookiness and that energy, and again, those voices of these children yeah. <laughs> from 70 years ago. Who are they? Yeah. You know, uh, but you know, I think this is a great way to move into you know the new models that you that you've put out, yeah. um, which you've you know you've you've taken these. Uh, these samples because really I've seen people refer to it as a synthesizer, but it's not a synthesizer. There's no, no synthesis. It's no. really they the first sample. Well, that's, you know? that's more a ling linguistic problem, actually. For many people today, unfortunately, uh, a keyboard instrument, an electronic keyboard instrument, I should say, uh, it, people call that a synth. It's it's a, it's a literal degradation of language because um, uh, 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 the, one of the beauties of language is distinctions. That you don't just don't call, you know, and it's just not just an animal. It's a cat or a dog or, or, or an ostrich or whatever. That's one of the, the issues I'm fighting, too, because it just became a synonym for an electronic. I mean, a lot of people call a MIDI controller a synth also which is right. also completely off the wall because it doesn't contain any sound generation. Uh, but, but so that's, of course, one, one of those tricky things. Then, of course, the other problem is that there is no, well, if I correct people and say, like, it's not a synth, well, what is it? Well, it's a playback sampler, and that kind of doesn't ring too well, <laughs> but that is what you would have to say. In short, you can say a sampler, of course. But but it just goes against my grain a little bit because sampling indicates that you can actually sample yourself, so to say. But uh, that that has never been the case and never will be the case with a melatonin uh, because we have have the whole principle of that it's our archive and we we keep it central, so to say. And that's why we have samples from all these seven artists from the 70s. And also now artists from the 90s like Wilco and the Foo Fighters, etc., etc. It definitely was uh, for me uh, 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 always was a labor of love the whole time. Even designing the digital one because I was never the first one we did was the one that we call the big M4000D now. It has wooden keys and a polyphonic aftertouch keyboard because the original instruments, if they were well adjusted, they had poly aftertouch effect that you could regulate the volume of each note by how deep you press each key. And that is, it was of course polyphonic because it depended on how hard you pressed the tape against the head. And that's something that John Bryan, for instance, and, and Patrick Warren and other Chamberlain experts have used a lot, which was one of the things that we found very important to include in the first instruments. And we also have, of course, the, the issue of our instrument is 37 keys F to F, and you can't buy a standard keypad that works like that. So we, we were at at the, at the start, I was also planning to do, do more a limited run of instruments. So I was from the beginning thinking of, 
of making a custom keyboard, and then of course it's it's you can make a custom scan electronics to it, which which we did, but where you basically uh, in real time detect the position of each key, and then you of course can play back each key with in real time with a volume change, so to say. So you can influence the volume of each note played back in real time independently of each of the other notes, which is also something that since like the CS80 in, in the 80s did, but it's it's rare now that that any keyboard instrument does that because it's just so because it's so expensive to do because you have to have an analog sensor for each key, which uh, most don't do. <laughs> and I was planning on just doing it like a, continue to do it like a more of a hobby sideline kind of thing, but. The response was overwhelming to my joy, of course, because the, the, the amount of programming work also and also design work was also a lot more than I, I expected, especially the programming took a lot longer than expected. Uh, but to my great joy, there were a lot more people interested than we were um, expecting. And then, of course, we came out with a mini that is basically the same as the big one, but it doesn't have the polyphonic aftertouch keypad. It has only a standard keypad that we, we have a custom procedure to make that keypad, so to say. And then uh, we came out with the rack, which is fairly simple. You just do the same thing, but just no keyboard and put it in the box. And then also now we put out the micro, uh, which has... has uh, uh, you know, a synthesizer style keyboard and a smaller keyboard also, so it's more portable. So, so and 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 we've been constantly been overwhelmed by the response. So, so we're 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 in the fortunate position of always lagging behind demand. And we've also incorporated, uh, you know, some of the some of the feedback that we received from. From some of the from some of the users and constantly been expanding also the MIDI capabilities, which we were we were not emphasizing at all in the beginning. We we just had a very basic MIDI in and MIDI out with polyphonic aftertouch, of course, on the big one. But now with the, you know uh, MIDI clock inputs and 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 signals and and whatnot, uh, uh, we we also have to expand those capabilities of of the instruments with. A lot of the, uh, or some of the features being remotely controlled by MIDI, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's definitely been something that got a little bit bigger than I was originally expecting it to be, so to say. And when did you first originally launch the the digital, the big, the because you started with? It sounds like you started with the polyphonic aftertouch large wooden key that was in late 2009 we came out with the first ones we were we were we were shipping the first ones we shipped what well, the first ones we shipped to the foo fighters that were recording an album back then and rami was just on me the whole time that he needed these sounds for those recordings and and he, he he's he his vintage instruments were not you know working well enough for him to to, to make it to, to make them fast enough so to use in the studio that kind of environment so he he was tearing the first one out of my hands basically more or less there in the beginning and then the, the same with the, also the chili peppers and and the smashing pumpkins at that same time the smashing pumpkins of course had bought one of my double manual analog instruments because I made all I've also made 
uh, analog mellotron instruments. Uh, I made over a hundred of the single manual instruments, and I made five, I think, of the dual manual instruments that have changeable tape frames, but and they work the, according to the same principle as the as the um, original uh, M400 uh, vintage uh, 70s instrument. But this time around, it actually works. <laughs> it has a working motor control, it has better rubber rollers, it has an improved tape path, uh, because you you might want, you know, a bit of wobble, but you don't want a lot of wobble, you know, you don't want it to sound out of tune, and you don't want to be, to have, to have like, uh, uh, to put all your weight on a key to even be able to pl play it properly, pro properly, you, you want something of course, that plays more or less like a Hammond or, or like a Thunder Road. And I managed to achieve that with a bit of extra work and some just some improvements in the general design of the instrument. And they, they're they up and running. I just, uh, as a matter of fact, I just uh, was tuning up fleece that I've been standing for a couple of years since they got the digital machine. And to my great surprise, even though it hadn't, there was no cover over it when it was standing in a rehearsal room, it was working really well, you know. So having done that, I knew what people were interested in to have a simple user interface, but nevertheless have access to a bunch of sounds. And then in a hidden, so to say, in, in a hidden menu, you can get into the nitty gritty of, you know, when you want a different attack and decay and whatnot. But that was not our prime goal, uh, the, the, the first and foremost thing that we wanted was just a very basic instrument where you can play this instrument back and it would be easy to see what you were using and it was easy to find the sounds and, and easy to blend between them and just turn it on and you're ready to go to be creative basically. That was our time goal. Well, I mean, goal has been achieved, my friend, because every time I turn it on, it's immediately sounds wonderful. That's why I purchased it, you know, as primarily a guitar player. You know, we were speaking a little bit before, you know, I, I don't want to sit and mess in all these EQs and menus just to trying to get a decent sound. This thing is so plug and play. Uh, and like you said, you can go in deeper into the menus and you can slow it. You've recorded the tapes at different speeds, which are options you can, you know, to change the tone. There are some different presets in the EQs, but just off the bat, obviously, it all sounds great. Um it's so easy to play and, 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 you know, great metal, you know, metal box. It's made for the road. It doesn't have to sit in the studio. And I've, I just more and more, I keep seeing musicians that are either, you know, playing the full 37 or they, they have the micro on top of a larger keyboard yeah. and then they can have access to all these wonderful sounds to put top lines yeah. on at a live show that you would never have strings. You would never have a Celeste or, yeah. you know, marimba or something that it's just it's such a, and then the micro, like I said, is so portable. Uh, it's just such a, a wonderful, you know, instrument to to have uh, just at your disposal, and that's that comes with just a hundred sounds to start. But the larger ones, you there are additional sounds with sound packs and uh, things like that. You can expand. Uh, and going back to this, the sampling aspect of it, since you are recording the, the source tapes, there's a limitation, obviously, of how low and high frequencies instruments can play. You know, so and how long the duration, which is generally around seven seconds nine, for most of these tapes. Yeah, nine seconds, exactly. Nine. Or nine, okay. Yeah, and that, that's actually what, what eats up. We decided on 24 bit and no no MP3. So our sound engine is our own creation. As a difference to 
from what I know, all other keyboard manufacturers, we don't use any data reduction. So it's full size WAV files, 24 bit, that are played back. I think that is also one of the reasons why a lot of people are are really happy with the sonic qualities of it. We didn't we didn't uh, compromise in the data reduction. The other thing is our sample playback technology is based on streaming from memory cards, compact flash in the bigger instruments and SD on the smaller instruments. And we, we stream it directly from the cards. So we have very little limitations on the, the actual, on the memory size, so to say. All other keyboards have to conserve memory in different ways. So they have also a RAM, rather large size RAM in their hardware architecture. And we've done away with all that. So we have, therefore we can use, um, we, we, we can use 24 bit and don't have to MP3 any of the sounds. That where we can model the sound of the the Chamberlain preamp, the Chamberlain M1 preamp, for, for instance, the M400 preamps, two different ones, and then also the Mark II, which is not only a preamp, but also a power amp and a specialized speaker. So that gives you yet another character to the whole thing, which is very important for, also again, happy accident, that one of the other things that the Mark II does with its speaker, etc., etc., it cuts through mixes, it cuts through almost anything, and, you know, it's just become a classic sound, and it blends and mates very well with especially the brass and the strings. So it's it's a nice option to have, so to say, that way. And that's that's we were really diligent when we were you know developing that stuff. Yeah, I mean, as I said, the simple design uh, and having the two sound banks with you know offering the same sounds in each bank, but having a live blend knob yeah. is a, really a game changer for a live situation. And you're getting a sound where you can you know mix um, you know a marimba with a saxophone yeah. you know at, at, yeah. at a varying degrees live and or even if you're trying to change quickly to a part oh i need a staccato part for this and then quickly switch to a legato yeah. you know you can do that so easily uh and also you know you want to add a little attack to your organ yeah put a little put a little celeste under yeah. it, you know what i mean yeah. and it'll, exactly. it'll have some bite you know it's just an amazing combination of sounds here and having that 24-bit uncompressed wave file i mean i swear i can hear the saxophone the air on the reed you know like some of these horns i mean you're not getting that from any other sound source you know these digital yeah. emulations that you get you know right, yeah um, and that lends to the ghostliness the reality of what you're doing and then when you have such a high quality file that's why you can put effects on it and make it this pad and and you know really just take it to, to the moon because you're coming from such a high quality source audio audio source and you know um just the layout of the machine is, is great man Thanks. Thanks. yeah the, the layout of the front panel we really wanted to, to keep it basically the same way as it was but then obviously we have to add some <laughs> some some tactile interface to access the more sounds and then then not to make it too cluttered i decided on two um uh, encoders that they're called the infinite uh, turnable encoders and button features in the the encoders so but there's many people who have used it in a lot of recordings and in a lot of sessions and albums without even knowing that you can press the two buttons and get into a different and get into a settings menu so that's that's kind of funny 
The other thing that I also wanted to mention is that it's been so gratifying because I've, me and Dave Keen also have been collecting and curating and lugging around these, so to say, these tapes for all these years, ever since the late 80s. And finally, it, it makes some sense, you know, finally people are fascinated by that fifth saxophone or that third, you know, um, Celeste or the sixth vibraphone. Finally, people and people are just like, oh, more, more, you know, more strings, more this, more that. That was, we were, I mean, we have so many sounds, but of course, naturally, if you, if you are buying tape frames at six, seven, eight hundred dollars, including, you know, the tape frame, the tape, the box, the shipping, all of that, and you're paying that for three sounds, you're not going to go for <laughs> that fifth vibraphone, you know, you're just going to stick with I mean, even even the people that have bought the most tape frames, they only, quote-unquote, have like 30 sounds or something. And then, you know, you, you, you don't, you're not interested in five saxophones, so what's the point of collecting all those tapes? Well, now there's people that are interested in them and, and get, you know, can get creative and can use them. And it, it can be, that archive can be used which is for a long time, we were just, you know, uh, I, I was cleaning the tapes and I was, you know, uh, making sure it was stored the right way. And, and you know, we, we, I was playing them off to dig digitize them, etc., etc. But, you know, at the time I was thinking, like, hey, who is ever going to be interested in this stuff? But of course, you know, now one realizes that it made a lot of sense and it's getting appreciated, which is, and not only not it's not also not to speak of the rhythms which were for a long time not even Dave and I could see any sort of sensible use for them. But now a lot of people are using them in, in movie soundtracks. They take them down to half speed. They use they, it's used in commercials. It's used for, you know for all kinds of different creative purposes and also just for pleasure. You know, people just having fun with them more or less in the way they were originally uh, intended. Of course, you don't have like a huge ballroom with people dancing maybe, but you still, you can sit there and have fun with, you know, the rhythms and, you know, try to do what the original intent of the instrument was, which was somehow s sort of replicating an orchestra. So, and, and an orchestra being a big band orchestra, to be specific. <laughs> Now, you had mentioned you have, uh, you know, obviously there's a programmer involved to get this going, you know, um, as far as that process goes, you know, I said, man, you mentioned you were, you were in engineering school as well. Like how many people are involved in Mellotron now? I know you have a small office in LA, you're based out of Stockholm, mm. um, but this is a lot of, you know, research and development and time. Yeah. And, you know, we speaking earlier just about the issues, just even shipping, um, you know, this seems like a very small operation for a very critical piece of musical history. Yes, we, we are uh, a small operation that is definitely the case like i said we have been a, a bit overwhelmed by the interest in our you know the whole thing and instruments and all of that so but in in the last few years i have uh, started to expand a little bit one thing being social media like you mentioned in la that's what we have in la and also uh, uh, trying slowly to offload the workload from me so to say which 
has been uh, a little bit overwhelming from time to time, of course, because you've had all these uh, old customers with old machines, etc., that are very time-consuming to help out. And then you have, I had a, a, a snowballing, so to say, production of electronics and mechanics, so to say, that I have to manage. It's been challenging from time to time, but slowly expanded in also the, the, the stack situation. And we're also using a company that also makes keyboards for, for Nord. And they are, they are um, assembling some modules for us, so to say, which we then do the final assembly of and make the, we do all of the, the final quality control, of course. So it's it, so it's taking a little bit of time to get to that point where where we where you realize that you you have to do what you what you're best at and try to farm out what you're not so good at. But uh, I can one thing I can say is that it's that we're never going to do any uh, manufacturing in China because this is way too intricate and and the the quality demands that I have on the things are. Just, I mean, we even tried even tried making cables in China, and they were not up to the, the, my quality standards. I mean, of course you can make high-quality stuff in China, of course. If you're Apple and making millions of things, then you can dedicate a whole factory and the most competent engineers you can dedicate to your work. But if you're just only, quote-unquote, doing a couple of thousand keyboards per year, most Chinese manufacturers, even if you take you on, after a few years, they're going to be like, what the hell? This is not going anywhere. You're not turning into uh, to Apple or, or Samsung or whatever. So they're just going to ditch you sooner or later. And that's uh, so that's not going to happen for, for us. It's always going to be made either in Sweden or possibly in the United States. But and some of our actors, actually, some of our aluminum enclosures are made in Pasadena in the United States. So there's there's some very high quality manufacturing in 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 United States, of course. I mean, you make space rockets. Of course, there's high quality manufacturing, <laughs> but it's even accessible to a small company like ours. The only quality keyboard manufacturers, the only one I might say, which also mold Dave Smith Instruments uh, Nord uses, is Fatar in in Italy. And I've seen keypads made in China, and, and, and you, when you order, even if, also if you, I've seen also people ordering MIDI controllers with those keypads, and you, you buy a container, you have to throw away 75%, literally, of them. Oh, because wow. it's just, it's just uh, immediately. And then I don't even want to know how much you have to throw away. The, the actual final customer has to throw away that has been using it, because it's, it's, it's not going to hold up over time. And of course, certain components are fantastic that they do in China. Certain parts are, of course, great, and it's it's it, they do a great job. But that's like when it's semi-standardized, so to say, and the like electronic components and stuff like that. So, yeah. Right. No. I, yeah. I understand, and I you know I definitely appreciate that. You know, this is hand built in Sweden, uh, and and the quality shows, man, right. for sure. And you do obviously offer you know warranties and things like that. Uh, but you know, uh, the critical part and part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show is because you know you can't really go to Sam Ash or Guitar Center, or the big box stores here in the U.S. to play one right now. You um you kind of have to know somebody that has one. I think right. Well, we do have our our website now digitalmelotron.com where we have our web store 
So that's the main outlet, and I suggest that you go there first, you know, to get uh, to in make an inquiry or just put in an order. So we have the older information at digitalmelatron.com, and that website is from '96, and it shows. <laughs> But but it, it's kind of I love I I kind of love it I love it though yeah. I think it's great it's uh yeah yeah, yeah I mean yeah. it's been updated <laughs> since like 2002 or something and around about 2005 I said like hey this is kind of cool I mean it looks it looks vintage for the vintage stuff and then there was not not much new stuff happening until 2009 when we came out with the digital instruments and those took off so fast that I, I, there was no need even to market it in a better way, so to say, because it was just, it, it, we had our, we were busy with other stuff, basically. And then a couple of years ago, I, we just decided like, hey, we just have to have a web shop and we have to have some better photos and we have to have more like knowledge about, you know, the, the, the cards and the sounds, etc. So then digitalmelatron.com is the place to go to, basically. We, um, we've been approached by Guitar Center, and it's, it's, uh, they, they are tricky to deal with. GC Pro, some GC Pro um, spots have been buying directly from us, and that works well. Guitar Center stuff, how shall I put it diplomatically, they need a hell of a margin, you know. So I don't want to say too much more, but my main goal is not going to be to sell these through Walmart or, you know, <laughs> even Guitar Center. It's more going to be direct, and it's or or just via one, just one step between me and the final customer, so to say. It's been one of my leading principles in the whole thing to give the, the end customer as much bang for their buck, basically value for their money that I hope shows at the end, and and that I hope will show over time. Hopefully, if that's been my objective the whole time to make instruments that will hold up or at least will pay off to repair over not five, not even 10, but 20, 30 years, so to say. Well, like I said, it shows. And, you know, I've, I've, I've shared the, my micro Mellotron with as many musicians as I can when they come over my house, I have to tell you. And, uh, you know, everyone's incredibly impressed with the ease, the sounds, you know, just the blending of now with the, you know, the digital world with the analog tapes and making it so accessible and road ready and you can tour now, um, you know, it's here and it's accessible for everybody. And we will have obviously links up to Mellotron.com and digitalmelotron.com as well as the Instagram. Uh, and, you know, Marcus, this was amazing, man. Thank you so much for coming on the yeah, show. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Is, is so. Can you leave us off with anything? Is uh, anything we can expect from Mellotron in twenty twenty three? Yeah, more sounds, more sound cards. Uh, definitely, we're 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 not at the end of the pile of of the tapes. There's tons of of more tapes actually, and more more sounds, and possibly also even in twenty twenty three, we might come out with the first our own sounds, so to say, because the one thing that's bizarrely lacking is Fender Rhodes, Wurlitzer, uh, and, uh, and of course other more exotic uh, electric pianos, but, but not even, there's not a single 
<laughs> founder or works a recording in, in the whole archive, which is kind of surprising. So, but I guess it was just because it was so common in the studios anyways back then. But that, that's, that's one of the things. And there might be also some, some new hardware surprises, but I don't want to say too much about that. From the feedback also from the users, we've seen that these instruments that we put out, they hold up kind of well. And we don't see an end to that production line for at least 10 years, I have to say, uh, to my great surprise. Well, I mean, that's exciting, the fact that there are more sounds that, you know, we have not heard that have not been transferred and put on these machines. So that is something to, you know, exciting to look forward to. And, you know, I just, you know, really enjoy the, again, the blending of the new with the old. And you have really done a great tribute uh, by not changing these things and keeping things true uh, to the to the original design and the original instrument uh, to carry it on here in the 21st century, my friend. Marcus, thank you so much. And thank you for making these digital Mellotrons, man. It, it really brings a lot of joy to me and I'm sure many, many other people. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And that concludes this week's edition of our interview series here at Sonic Artifacts. Remember to please hit the subscribe button on your favorite streaming platform and tune in Tuesdays for our weekly series featuring the best deals in affordable vintage music equipment across America. You can follow all the deals on our Instagram at Sonic underscore Artifacts and become a Sonic supporter over at Patreon. This is your host, Brian Chalemi, signing off from Manhattan, and Max will be back on the next episode, so hang tight, and see you everybody on Tuesday for some fresh deals.